vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide in me, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We're in a series where we're walking through the Gospel of John, and in doing so, we're challenging our doubts. Are those things that we look at with either suspicion or we disregard them and count them as myth? Perhaps it was true then, but it's not true now. Perhaps Jesus Christ had an intimate relationship with his disciples where he walked with them, they heard his voice, they were led by him, and it seemed to be so easy to follow with him physically present, but he has now gone to the heavens, he's absent, and I can't enjoy that intimacy that they had. Well, we spoke last week, and looking at John 14, where Christ made a rich and wonderful promise, a promise that would reach their troubled and fearful anxious hearts, hearts that were growing anxious as he repeatedly said, I must go into Jerusalem, and there I will be seized, tried, and I will be slain, but I will return. And he keeps talking about his absence, and they began to become increasingly troubled by that. But he promises to come again, And not only his resurrection, but after his ascension to go to be with God where he is now, he says this promise, I will abide with you. I will come to you. And I will come into you. And all of my disciples from here and furthermore 
all of my disciples, all of my followers will know intimacy with God, with me, the Holy Spirit, the very Trinity itself, even more so than when I was physically present with you. And so we can see that by way of example that we can move from a myth to acknowledge truth. And then as we acknowledge it to be true, that there is this promise of Christ dwelling in the believer through the Holy Spirit, I began to put weight upon it, faith, belief. I began to consult it in the course of my week to realize that in the course of the week, I'm not alone. And not even, not even my sin, if I'm a follower of God through Christ, can send him away. That he has pledged and he keeps his promise to even abide with me no matter what my life is like. Now, I believe that we can grieve the Holy Spirit, that he will be very dormant, as it were, very quiet. But for those who have placed their faith in Christ, he will never, he didn't come because of our merit, and he won't stay because of our merit. And so I began to believe that, and then over time, I began to experience life from it. That it's not simply a, 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 a lesson in the catechism, it's not simply raw doctrine. It's not simply acknowledged truth, but it's something to think that He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. And even if I don't feel His presence, and sometimes we will not, I know because it is true that He is there and He abides with me forever. This morning in John 15, we see an, another side of the invitation to abide with him. Last week, we see where Christ said, I will promise, I will come, and I will abide with you. This week, we're going to look at the invitation that he gives to us to come and abide with him. Thus far in the Gospel of John, he has invited people to come and to follow him. He's invited them to come to him. Now, as he is talking about his leaving, he invites those who have come to stay, to abide in him. And I, I like, and I'm taking for my definition of abide, uh, Dale Bruner in his commentary and study of the language. He said, the word for abide, menen, is the word that is used for dwelling or staying in the home. It's the, if, it would be like uh, when I was in high school, they had home ec. They had, uh, they had, you could go to uh, shop or you could go to home ec. And the gals went to home ec. And it was how to learn to be a homemaker. And I know we had a lot of gender issues in those days. But there were, uh, you know, you learned how to, to live in a home and to make a home there. And that's what the word abide, the invitation that Christ has given to us today is saying, learn how to settle in with him. We could say, learn how to walk with him, learn how to talk with him, learn how to listen to him, learn how to be at home with Jesus. 
And it is a learning process. It's not something that we can even do successfully in fits and spurts as if, well, I'm going to go away this weekend and I'm going to really learn how to be at home with Jesus. No. Andrew Murray, in his book, Abide with Christ, which is a classic, Andrew Murray, a uh, Scottish uh, Presbyterian minister who made his ministry in South Africa in uh, the 19th century, wrote a wonderful book, and I'll quote from it in just a little bit. He wrote a wonderful book called Abide with Christ. And it's rather lengthy, but in his preface, he said, the singular thing that I want to say in the preface of this book to abide with Christ is that it is a daily, it is a daily, it is a daily endeavor. It is not something that that can be accomplished either overnight or in a fortnight. It is daily making ourselves at home and making ourselves comfortable in the home that Jesus is for our soul. Now, that's the, the, our, our focus then is going to be the word abide in me, which means to make our home with Jesus, at home with Jesus. And if you're looking at the outline, I'm led this morning to make this two parts. So I'm just going to cover the first part about Jesus inviting us to make ourselves at home in him. And then next week, we'll have part two as I come to see the text this morning as being another invitation where he gives us what's called the the command to love or a loving command, where he says, if you now do make your home with me, your life is going to begin to reflect your family. Your life at home with me is going to begin to reflect what the head of the household and the other family members do as far as employment, what they love, what they eat, what they drink, what they sing, what they speak. You're going to begin, that home is going to begin to be reflected. If you abide in me, it's going to be reflected in a love for one another. And as I said last week, He's speaking to the disciples. He's not so much, this is not a text for evangelism as much as it's a text for community. In other words, looking at two rivers as a church home and a home where Jesus dwells. And I may not be happy with all the family members, but God the Father has chosen them to dwell in this home called Two Rivers, and we're now commanded to work out our love for one another. And we're going to do that on the basis of the head of the house and his love for us, Jesus Christ. We'll look at that in some detail next week. Without further ado, let's look at the first point here, and really the only point, though it be a large one, the invitation to make our home in him. Oh, by the way, Help me remember, I've I've got a few groceries to pick up on the way home. Sparkling water, smoked salmon, French bread, butter, and paprika. Uh, Oh, by the way, Trey, you remember the list? What was the list? Yeah, the groceries. But what was the first thing? What was the second thing? All right, you're doing good. What's the third thing? 
I don't look at her. Don't look at Catherine. French bread, then butter, then paprika. Um, I just finished reading a book, and it's called Moonwalking with Einstein. And uh, uh, Josh Frober wrote this book, and it's based on the memory device that was um, illustrated by a philosopher, a Greek philosopher by the name of Simonides. Simonides in 82 BC was interviewed because there, were, there, was a, there was a building where there was a great feast and there were many dignitaries and there were many poets and there were many doctors and there were, there were many noblemen and women that were there, upwards of 150 at that time a great feast. And the, the structure failed. And it killed the people in such a way under the rubble that many of them, they were not able to identify or even find under the rubble. And Simonides came forward and he says, I can tell you everyone that was there. He said, I was there, but I didn't, I didn't stay or I was not caught up in the rubble. And he was able, with all the 150 people, he was able to recite every name of the people there. Not because he was so intimate with them. Many of them were strangers to them, though he knew them by name. And the way that he was able to do it, because he knew where they were placed. He said, let's see, standing next to the pillar was the poet. And then over at the table here was the singer. And then over here in the portico was the philosopher. And so, Moonwalking with Einstein puts forward this memory device. If you have a lengthy grocery list that, of course, we've got a lot of aids, we've got a lot of crutches, but if you want to expand your brain power here, if you want to exercise your brain, that Moonwalking with Einstein says, pick a place such as a home that you have lived in where you know the outline of that home. And as you start in the front, let's say the mailbox, imagine a visual of sparkling water. Let's say that like a fire hydrant, water is just gushing and it's sparkling in the sunshine there at the mailbox. Then you step onto the driveway, and lo and behold, there's a huge salmon that is smoking a stogie, you know, kind of with a, with a hat cocked on his head, you know, like Charlie the Tuna, and he's just, he's just kind of smoking there in your driveway. And then you step to the door, French bread, remember? And there's a maid, you know, a French maid who invites you to come into your home. And you're like, okay, well, I guess, you know, we hired a maid, you know? And so you walk in, and now as you're making your way to the kitchen, going down the hallway, you're, it's just so slick because butter is all over the floor. And then for me, you go into the kitchen, and there's a red velvet bag called Old Pappy's that is just spouting paprika from it. Now, it's a very short grocery list, so most of us would cheat, and we would use our own memory devices, or we would put it on our iPhones, or we'd write a, a list. But you can do that 
you can do that with a deck of cards. Now the trick is you've got to be able to visualize and you've got to have that many rooms in your house. But every place you go, you can attach a visual to it so as you're walking through this home that is so familiar to you, you're so familiar with the architecture, you can remember items that are found there. And that was the way that Simonides did it. Now, taking a long time in this illustration, what's the point? Jesus Christ, over and over and over again in this text, says, abide in me. Make your home in me. Make your home in me. Make your home in me. What does that, what is he asking us to do? He's asking that our thoughts, he's asking that our life being so embedded in him that wherever we go, when I go into the workplace, when I go into the classroom, when I go into to the coffee shop to meet with a friend, when I am walking uh, you know, the street for exercise, when I am, you know, wherever I go, that the home with Christ is not a specific geographic location, but it is everywhere. In other words, I can never, as a Christian, be outside of home with Jesus Christ. If I'm abiding with him, I will always be inside of the home with Christ. Here, if you look at the scriptures, he tells us in verse 15 that I'm the true vine. And if you have a copy of your scripture, this uh, I should have put this in. It's Isaiah chapter 5. I should have put this in by way of our Old Testament lesson this morning. But in Isaiah 5, we find the appearance of the vine. Now, Israel, in the Old Testament, is referred to as the vine. And it's always identified as a vine that God caretakes. But the vine of Israel, as we read in Isaiah chapter 5, I guess I better get it if I'm going to read it. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard, that's God, on a very fertile hill. The vineyard is Israel. He dug it and he cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. He's expecting it to be fruitful. A lot of care is going in to this vineyard by the husbandman, the gardener, God himself. And he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. I'll end there with Isaiah 5, but every time Israel is referred to as a vine with an expectation to bear good grapes and good fruit for God, its husbandman, it proves to be either fruitless or a wild rambling vine that yields sour grapes. But in Psalm 80, there is a promise made. In Psalm 80, in verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations, and you planted it, you cleared the ground for it, 
It took deep root and it filled the land. That is speaking specifically of the promised Son, Jesus Christ. You may say, how do you get that from that? Do you remember in the Gospels where we find that there's, after the birth of Christ, that because of the slaughter of the innocents by Herod, he did this grand sweep to try to take out every male born under the age of two, hoping in that net to capture the promised Messiah, the promised King of Israel, the One. And it was at that time that Joseph and Mary were told to go to Egypt, to flee until Herod was either overthrown, he came to pass away, and at that point they were instructed to return back to Israel. Thus fulfills the prophecy, out of Egypt I will call my son. That's this verse. And it tells us that this son is the vine that God planted. And Jesus Christ here, in verse 1 of of John 15, uses the last of seven I am statements. I am, capital letters, all, meaning I am is the name of God that was given to Moses in the burning bush. Suffice it to say, that it may seem to be a mysterious name, but what it means is, is I am sufficient and I am complete and there is no other. In other words, there is no true vine, there is no true home, there is no real place for you to abide, to experience fruitfulness apart from this one. He's the only one. He's not one of the real vines. He's not one of many choices. He's the only one. He is the absolute only one. And some of us, some of us, thankfully, by God's wonderful graces, have come to find that out. That there's no home like Jesus. There's no earthly home. Though earthly homes have come to fail us, There is no occupation or hobby. There's no sin, no matter how much, how it delights us initially. There's no place like home with Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying with the I am. He's saying, I'm the real place. I'm the real deal. And I'm the only one. I'm the real true vine. And I invite you now to embed yourself as branches in me. Come to my home. Um, I'll, I'll take a liberty and uh, give you a, a, an illustration out of The Hobbit since it's still in the movie theaters. Now, if you go see The Desolation of Smog, the last homely house does not make an appearance. It makes this appearance in part one of The Hobbit in the movie series. And I suspect it'll make its appearance in the last part three of The Hobbit in the movie series. But the homely house in the travels of both Bilbo and Frodo as hobbits and the dwarfs and Gandalf is called the last homely house. It's it's in that area between the Shire and the lands outside of the Shire and the wilderness. 
and it can be seen as either the last safe house or, if you're coming from the wilderness, the first house that you come to as you come back in to a safe area. But it's unlike any other place. Listen to Bilbo. They stayed long in that good house, and they found it hard to live. Bilbo would gladly have stopped there forever and ever, even supposing a wish would have taken him right back to his hobbit hole without trouble. In other words, there's nowhere in the hobbit that Bilbo would rather be than his warm, safe, personal home of a hobbit hole. But with this one exception, he always wants to go back to his hobbit hole. But here he's saying, at the last homely house, which is an elfin house, Elrond is the head of this house, and he welcomes them and he feasts them and they, they sing in this place. His, Elrond's house was perfect. Whether you like food or sleep or work or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mix of them all, evil things did not come in. And they stayed in that house. And they stay there, and Bilbo says, I wish I could stay there, in that place, where you could sing, or you could talk, or you could rest. You could do any combination of those things. And evil would not come in to that abode. We were safe there. And just prior to leaving, they stayed there many weeks. It says, while the hobbits began to talk and think of the past journey and of the perils that lay ahead, such was the virtue of the land around that house that all fear and anxiety was lifted from their minds. The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but it ceased to have any power over the present. If you look at the scriptures, the offer that Christ makes to them is not one that will be free of trial, but it will be, all trial will be faced with his presence. In other words, he comes not to say that when he, that now the disciples are going to be in this bubble and bulletproof from all trial, but that he is going to be with them. And they don't have to be anxious. And they don't have to be fearful. Will they stay with him? Or will they look to their own devices? Here it says that he tells them that if you're going to abide in me, verse 4, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it bides in the vine. In other words, you cannot be fruitful apart from Jesus Christ. Now some of you would say, well, I have long ceased had on my agenda to be a fruitful person, if I know even what that means. You know, I, I have a relationship with God through Christ, and I keep my head down, and I take care of my responsibilities. I'm not really a bad person. But this idea of fruitfulness, you know, that just seems to be one more production. I don't, I'm not taking in on any more responsibilities. I've just got to take care of my stuff. Well, fruitfulness 
is a natural response to abiding in the vine. It's not one more production. It's something that we find is a consequence, as it were, from abiding with Christ. If you look ahead to verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Let me put it together for you. Jesus Christ has chosen us and he has put his name upon us. And he has redeemed us. He has come to us and he says as the great vine that he is, I will put you now into me. I invite you to come into me. I choose you. And in so doing, he not only chooses us, but he infuses us with his life and his love and his righteousness. He imputes it to us theologically speaking. He infuses us with all of his life and we will thereby bear fruit. Okay, so I cut the outline in half so that's so that I can plague you with yet another quote. Andrew Murray, Abide in Christ. He himself offers us his very life as the living home of our soul, where the mighty influences of his grace will be stronger to keep than all their feebleness to lead astray. Bear with me, hang in there. The idea they have, he's talking about a particular group of people, even us, the idea, I could say parenthetically, that most of us have of grace is this, that their conversion and their pardon are God's work. Okay? On that we're agreed. I, I was not looking for God. God found me. I could not pardon myself. It had to come from God through Christ's death on my behalf. So I agree that that's his work. But that now, in gratitude to God, it is their work to live as Christians and follow Jesus. In other words, He saved me, but i got to work out everything else. And I'll do it in gratitude, but i got to work it all out on my own energies. No, wandering one, says Andrew Murray, as it was Jesus who drew thee when he said, Come, so it is Jesus who keeps you when he says, Abide. The grace to come and the grace to abide are alike from him alone. In other words, don't think in this passage that it's a command, it's a regulation, it's a work, it's a grace. Don't think that it is something else that you have to drum up, you have to do, oh, great, I believe in Jesus, and now you're asking me to make him my home. What does that look like in the course of the day. Think more. Think more about what a home looks like and that wherever you go, 
that He will not leave you and forsake you. You are always abiding in Him, and that not by your own devices or energies, but by His grace. Now, Kevin DeYoung, in his wonderfully, as he would say, mercifully short little book for those that are too busy to read another book, called Crazy Busy, says that the number one enemy, the number one enemy from making your home with Jesus is busyness. Busyness. That like Martha, busy about her own homemaking, found herself distracted, found herself upset that her sister Mary would be found in the home with Jesus and sitting at his feet. Kevin DeYoung makes this statement about dwelling and making making our home with Jesus. He says what it looks like is spending time with the Lord in word and prayer. And if we do so, we are likely to gain new perspective on our hassles and our headaches. If you start each day with your eternal home in mind, it will make most of your daily problems seem very petty. It will make your long to-do list seem less significant. By sitting at the feet of Jesus, we will grow more like him, more patient, more loving, more thoughtful. See, this is the fruit that starts to happen. It's not a work. It's not that you go out and do something fruitful, but it's that you carve out time every day to be at home with Jesus, to spend time with him. And what's going to happen is you're going to become more like him. And he is fruitful, and it's the promise of fruit. We'll see that our computer screens or iPads, or iPhones, do not satisfy like our Savior. We'll see that wisdom was not born yesterday or 34 seconds ago on social media. We'll learn to keep our complaints to a minimum and our eyes on the cross, and we'll become more helpful to those around us. And I look at that helpful to those around us as being fruitful. You could replace the word fruitful with the word helpful. You could say, as I walk in this home with Jesus, as I walk into this room and I see the rich truth that it's not about me being righteous as much as it is receiving His righteousness, receiving His life of obedience as if it were my own life of obedience, receiving going into another room, And seeing Jesus Christ as one who welcomes conversation. He welcomes my prayers, my fears, and my desires. He welcomes them. Going into another room. And so it's it's being with Jesus in the home. And then I began, over time, to be like the very I am who is the true vine. This morning as we get ready to conclude, there is both a word of warning but a word of instruction. When he talks about God as the master gardener, he says in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, 
He's thrown away like a branch, and he withers. The branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done. And what he's talking about here is if you look in the language of it about the the pruning and the, the, the branches, there's two words that are used here. And there's a word, airy, that is used for the word cut off. And there's a word, catheri, from which we get the word catharis, or catharization, or catharsis, that means cut back. One is cut off, and one is cut back. And so I read this week at Barnes & Noble, I picked up a gardening book, and it was... Why in the world won't my fruit trees and vines produce? And I thought, that's pretty interesting. That's pretty interesting. And so I opened it up, and the number one thing that they say as to why vines will not produce the best grapes is for lack of pruning. And that some vines have grown so out of control and into every crack and overlapping everything that they need to be cut back. In other words, they have such independence, the branches, the leaders, have such independence from the main old vine, such independence, that they're going wild. They're going every place. Think about a wild grapevine that that is so prominent here in Charleston and in the pine forest. It just grows over everything. It needs to be cut off. You go as close as you can. You go back to as close as you can to the main vine, and that's where you cut it back. You cut it off. In other words, you cut off everything to get it as close to the source, Jesus, as possible. And then there are other vines that they've been regularly pruned And annually, not just once in a blue moon, not just when it looks like it needs it, but whether it looks like it or not, regularly the gardener will come and he will not cut it off, but he'll trim it. He'll cut it back that it might produce. How do you see, how do you see your life? Is your life one right now? Because you see, we're all right now being pruned. Or we're just past being pruned, or we're just coming into being pruned. Maybe we're in a happy intermediate state. But the promise is, is that all the branches will be pruned. Some of us have been living so independently that God, who loves us so wonderfully and is so committed to our good and our being fruitful and to bring himself as a gardener glory through our lives, that he will not only cut us back, he will cut us off. And you might think, how harsh, but it's not. It's a severe mercy, as it were. Maybe it's a loss of health, Maybe it's a loss of job. That, I don't know, could be 
cutting back instead of cutting off. But I leave it to you discern. How do you right now face the pruning? Can you trust God to say, God, I know that this is not tearing me down. It's not killing me, even though it hurts. But it's strengthening me that I might be the fruitful person. I might be the person who reflects being at home with you. That I am under your care. How do you face trial? With thanksgiving? Even with joy? Or with grousing because he's cutting me off and keeping me back from what I want to do independent of him? God knows. God knows that that is not a fruitful life. The gospel is this, and it's demonstrated visually at this table, that I can have a fruitful life, and that I will never be cut off in the sense of my life being required because of my sin if I've given my life to Jesus Christ because that true vine was cut off. He was cut off at the root, as it were, from God on the cross. He was totally cut off, and he faced the fire for us on our behalf that we could have the good news promise that we shall never be cut off if we make our home with him. Oh, he will cut us back. And he said, in this life, you will be fruitful, but it's because I've chosen you and at home with me I'm shaping you and I'm molding you to be the very sons and daughters of the Most High God. So that as often as we celebrate the Lord's table we see one who was cut off on our behalf in order that we could make our home in Him, Jesus Christ. And that He, the very fruit, this wine, that we take in, that we literally do make our home with him as we eat and we sup with him and we take him in. And out of this grape, we become fruitful. Out of this, his life, we become more like him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would lead the class in home economics. That you would come and you would personally invite us again with all love that you are to make our home with you. That you have promised to abide with us and now you want us without reluctance to find that you are the true homely house. That you are the best vine, that you are the real home that we can make our abode on. You're what we've been looking for all of our life. And may we stay in that home. And may we walk with you and your words in each room come alive to us. All the while, you're pruning, you're crafting, you're shaping that we might be reflective sons and daughters of you, God, as our Father, and Christ, our brother, and the Spirit, 
the mighty Lord. Father, I pray that you would use even these humble elements that we set aside now for that purpose and that end, that as we take of you the best of fruit, that you would make us fruitful. And Father, that as you provide this home place for us by being cut off, that you would remind us the privilege it is to be grafted in, never to be cut off because of Christ on our behalf. This end we pray in Christ's name.